people. And so we want to kind of find the balance there of what does it mean to be spirit-filled. And so we're going to look at Acts, and we're not going to look at a lot of verses today, so you're welcome. But Acts 2, we're going to start in verse 42 and see really these, these habits. And this was a unique time. This is kind of cool because, again, the, Jesus died, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, sent his disciples back to Jerusalem, said, wait there for power. Acts 1.8, that's what was on our bumper video, says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. The point of the Holy Spirit coming in power was to be a witness. So the Holy Spirit comes upon them. There's 120 in a room. Awesome scene, you know, tongues of fire, wind blowing, kind of emotional, pretty exciting. Uh, they start speaking in tongues. They go outside, and Peter preaches the first Christian sermon. And he is a little bit blunt. Uh, he's a little bit not politically correct, where he goes out there and he's like, hey, by the way, you all are not okay. You know, I mean, he said it in, in maybe more loving than that, but no, he didn't. He said, you killed the Messiah. The one that God made, uh, you know, Lord and Christ, you killed him. And his message there is the same message to us. Our sin put God in flesh on the cross. The living God, the one who never sinned, went to the cross for us. And that was Peter's message. You put him on the cross. But by the way, this was God's plan from the beginning. So although it's the worst thing that's ever happened in the history of the world, it's the greatest thing that's ever happened in the history of the world because through Jesus' death, we could be forgiven of sins. Through Jesus' resurrection, we see that his sacrifice was accepted by the Father and we can now have life in him. And so Peter preaches that sermon and at the end, the people go, what do we do? It says they're cut to the heart. There's emotion in that. They're broken because of their sin. They're broken as they realize the Messiah came and we missed it. We killed him or we were part of, we were here, we missed it. And they were, they were cut to the heart. They said, what do we do? He said, repent and be baptized and you will receive the Holy Spirit also. That day, 3,000 were saved. So 3,000, can you imagine that logistical nightmare? I mean, what if one day we had 3,000 people saved? It's like, oh boy. You know, how do we take care of these people? And we're gonna see, I think, some keys in here of how they did that. But here's a lot of people all of a sudden saved, and there's some purity in the church. It's brand new. The apostles are still there. We're going to see soon in Acts some trouble in the church that they have to deal with. But it seems like there's a little bit of purity right here at the, at the first, and we see their habits. So look with me at Acts 2, starting in verse 42. It says, and they devoted themselves, this they is the 3,120 <laughs> That, that are now part of the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for this accurate historical account 
that we see at of the beginning of your church, how you started this movement to change lives, to change communities, to, to reconcile people back to you. And God, we want to be part of your movement. Uh, we want to be faithful to you. We don't want to just do church. We don't want to be religious. We want to connect with you. Uh, Jesus, you said that eternal life is that we know you and the Father. We want to know you deeply. You said that the greatest commandment is that we love you. We want to love you deeply because we know that you love us. So stir our hearts. Stir our hearts. Stir our faithfulness uh, in you, God. It's, it's work that only you can do. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to be here among us, that we would be spirit-filled here and in all the homes where we're watching, that you would stir us to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we're going to see five priorities of the early church. And I would argue these are five priorities that should also be our priorities. Now in Acts, there's some things that are descriptive and there's some things that you could say are prescriptive. It's just describing what happened. And other times it's, it's telling what happened, but also some of, and the church should continue to do this. And so we see both, some of both in this passage. But here's the five priorities. This is what we're going to look at. The first one, a commitment to listen to the apostles' teaching. A commitment to listen to the apostles' teaching. Now, if, if you're a note taker, you know, we have the bulletins as you came in, and at home you have access to them too. Uh, if you're sitting on a couch and you want one, just get up and go get it. No big deal. Um, or you can download the app, uh, Common Ground, and, and, and take notes on there. But that's the first one. A commitment to listen to the apostles' teaching. Look at verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That word devoted, it means devoted. <laughs> I mean, they really passionately gave themselves to it. It's a hunger for God's word. They gave themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, we have to remind that the apostles had unique authority. You see here, there are signs and wonders being done. And who are they being done through? The apostles. So they had unique authority. In fact, uh, all our biblical or, or all our New Testament books... Uh, how they got in here was one of the tests was they had to be attached to an apostle. Not anybody could just write scripture and say, hey, this is from God. They had to be attached to an apostle. So they gave themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is a big deal. You know, for, a, again, a spirit-filled church, we give ourselves over to the apostles' teaching. Uh, in the Great Commission, we see in Matthew 28, after Jesus died, and you see this in all the Gospels, Jesus says it in different ways multiple times, the Great Commission. But he says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. That's, that's the Great Commission. And in it, he does not say, go make converts. He says, go make disciples. And a disciple is a, a follower. It means a lifelong learner of somebody else. So a disciple was somebody who would put themselves under the teaching of a, of a master. Not only would they learn from them, but they would pattern their lives after that person. And so we are disciples of Jesus. And in that great commission, you see part of that command is go make disciples, baptizing and teaching them. Teaching them to what? Obey all I have commanded you. And I think it's kind of neat that we see uh, these disciples do exactly what Jesus told them to do. They immediately receive the Spirit and they start preaching the Word. People are converted and they start, first they baptize and then they start teaching them. And not just teaching for knowledge, but teaching for life change. You know, Jesus changes lives. The Holy Spirit comes to change lives. So they teach. And for us, 
This is Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. All Scripture. So we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. This, this is our Bible. This is God's Word. So we also give ourselves to the apostles' teaching, but it's through the Word. And so this first habit, how is that habit in your life? That's why if you're new to Common Ground or you're visiting, we give ourselves to the Word on Sundays. My goal, and whoever's teaching, goal is to open it up and say, what does this mean? What did the original writer intend it to mean when they wrote it? How do we understand that to be true? And then how do we apply that here and now? That's what we do. And then you can do that in your own lives. That should be a habit in our own lives. It should be a habit in our groups. That's why we focus on outpost groups, home groups, is so that we can do this right now, listen, and then have questions, and then get together and go, I'm not so sure about that. Or what does that mean? Or that is so true. I've seen that in my life. And do life together around the word. So if you're a note taker, we continue this habit by devoting ourselves to knowing and obeying Scripture. So there's the first one. Second habit, a commitment to fellowship. A commitment to fellowship. You see that also in verse 42. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. What does fellowship mean? Maybe you were raised in a church. Maybe you were raised traditional. What did fellowship mean? We, we always had a fellowship hall. That's where we did the, the meals together, which was great. Uh, I, I loved those where everybody brought a casserole and shared it. And all us kids ran around and did things we shouldn't do. And we called that fellowship. Is that fellowship? Well, it's, it's part of it. You know, or, or we would say, hey, what did you guys do yesterday? Oh, we fellowship together. You know, we sat around and drank coffee. That's, that's part of fellowship. But fellowship is actually way greater than just hanging out and liking one another, or not liking one another and hanging out because you're supposed to. Fellowship refers to a, a joined life and mission. That's what fellowship is. It is a commitment to a shared Christian life and mission. You know, the Apostle Paul would write, do not forsake the gathering together. The New Testament is full of one another's. You know, do this with one another. Jesus said, here's, here's my new commandment I give you, love one another. I mean, all the commands that we're told about one another, love is kind of the overarching one. But fellowship means we do life together. And we believe that real life change happens in authentic relationships around the word. Again, this is why we focus so much on, on groups. You know, being known, you can't fellowship by coming to church late and leaving early and not knowing anybody. Fellowship means sharing life. And, and if you're an introvert like me, there's a piece of you that's like, I'd rather just do it alone. But the truth is, our spiritual life is very personal, but it's not private. We're called to share. And I have people tell me all the time, I don't really need the church. I don't need other people. I'm like, well, for one, you're wrong. You do. But also then, the church needs you. you know, if you're a Jesus follower, you have the spirit, you're gifted in a unique way. God's plan is that the church needs you. And so even the idea that I don't need the church, that's a, a little bit selfish, because we need what God has put in you for us. You know, it's not just consumer Christianity. We get to share this. That's fellowship. So it's relationships with being known and going on mission together. It's, it's kind of a shoulder by shoulder. You know, we're in relationship and we're going this way together. You know, marriage. 
marriage is one of those two. It's a shoulder-to-shoulder intimate relationship in a direction. You know, if you're raising kids, you've got a big job, you know, raising these kids. But us, we're the same way. The mission to make disciples, the mission to share the gospel, we do this. So we're on mission together in relationship. Look at verse 46. Here we see this emphasized. It says that day by day, they attended the temple together. So together they would go to the temple. Remember, these first believers were Jewish. And there was a period of time where they wrestled with their Jewishness and their new Christianity. And so there was this overlap of time where they're like, we still do Jewish things. We still go to the temple. You know, maybe even some sacrifice things until they really understood that Jesus was the final sacrifice. Uh, and God, in his grace and mercy, would in AD 70 let the temple be destroyed. And so that was no longer an issue after that. Uh, but this was going to be kind of a wrestle. So they continued to go to the temple and to worship. But that's not all they did. And, this is verse 46, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. You wonder why we're doing home church today? Because this is one of the things that we see. How do 3,000 people gather together? They don't. <laughs> I, I mean, not in this context. They didn't have buildings. You know, there were synagogues around, Jewish, but you, you weren't going to fit them all in one. The pattern that they made, that they came up with was, we're going to go house to house. They did small groups. They did outpost groups. You know, you read through the New Testament, a lot of those early churches were in homes. You know, people would, would host it. And so, again, that's why we're trying it out today. Maybe in this COVID environment, this is something God wants to use here and now in our country, some home churches, because it's okay. But yet, we're always going to continue to do this. So if maybe you're like, well, we have this building and it's great, we're not going to stop doing this. So don't worry about that. But part of this fellowship was getting together in homes, uh, sharing life. And that leads to the third one. The third habit, what do we see here? Verse 42, it says, And to fellowship and the breaking of bread. Breaking of bread, what's that? Eating together. Kind of like that video you saw, that weird guy just a minute ago talking about bless. Eating together. They had the habit of getting together and having meals. Now, it also includes the Lord's Supper. And so as you read the commentators on this, you know, all really agree. This is talking about two things, having meals together and the Lord's Supper, or what we often call communion. And the way they did it often was they would get together for this meal, and then they would observe the Lord's Supper during the meal, similar to how Jesus did it with his disciples uh, that first night, the Last Supper in the upper room. You know, we do it here every other week. Uh, we have them up front. And so we celebrate the Lord's Supper, but also, again, part of this is eating together. So, number three, a commitment to eating together and taking the Lord's Supper. And again, where did they do this? Verse 46, breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. In their homes. You know, this idea of hospitality, that was part of the early church. Hey, we're coming over. Hey, you want to come over? Now, I'll be totally honest. As I study culture and society and those things, I think it was a lot easier then. They didn't have cars. <laughs> you, you know, they, they didn't have airplanes. Probably not a lot even had horses. And so their, their life was right in their area. I mean, even Jesus, he never traveled more than, I think, 100 miles from where he was born in his entire life. And so culture was different then, which means we need to be a little bit more intentional about it. 
You know, I, I think they were better. You know, they didn't have outlets, so they couldn't charge their phone as much as we do now. Um, they didn't have all these distractions. We need to be a little bit more intentional, but I think we still need this. Again, this is why we focus on, on home groups, you know, trying to get together and intentionally share life. Again, it's, it's why we have kind of this blessed strategy where we say, eat, because if you're like me, you have to make some of these intentional, or you'll just go to your garage, hop in your car, open the garage door, go to work, do your thing, hop back in your car, come back in, close the garage door, walk inside and watch football. And then you see nobody. You don't share life with anybody. It's so easy to do. So that's the third one. Fourth one. Again, still verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayers. The church is to be devoted to prayer. Now again, some of the things we see are descriptive of the early church. Some are prescriptive. And this is definitely one of those. We are to be a church of prayer. We don't want to run off ahead of God. We want to listen to God. We want to connect to God. Again, you know, Jesus said, eternal life is that you know me and the Father. What's part of knowing somebody? Communication. Prayer. And so we pray. When we're singing, we're praying. You know, it's, it's praise, but it, it's praying. When we get together in groups, part of that should be praying for one another. We have a prayer team. Uh, most of them aren't here right now. Some of them are here. Uh, and this morning they met on Zoom. But every Sunday morning they meet in the conference room and pray. Prayer is vital to the health of a church. Because again, if we start doing church without God, which can happen very easily, we're just doing religion. We're just wasting our time. We want to seek God, listen to God. And prayer isn't always just telling God what we want or asking him to do something for us. It's, it's listening. So again, part of why we're doing this home church thing is to listen to God and pray, God, is this something you would have to reach other people or to reach our people that are just disconnected right now? And we're praying, God, God speak to us. Pray, try, listen. So the church is to be devoted to prayer. So there's the first four. Now there's a fifth one. We see those four explicitly stated in verse 42. This fifth one, you kind of see just spread throughout. And it's this. That God's people are marked by generosity. God's people are marked by generosity. Look at verse 44 and 45. It says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Look at verse 46. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. This early church was marked by generosity. This, this should be prescriptive for us as well, that we, when we are changed by Jesus, we become generous people. It's, it's not so much a duty. It, it is a duty. It is a responsibility. But when we understand the gospel, what God has given us through Jesus, the natural response is we become generous. God, you've given me everything I mean, including this body, the food that I have, the gifts, and the, the job that I... You've given me everything, and you've given me eternity. You've given me your Holy Spirit. You know, I have heaven with you forever. What, what do I lack? That leads us then to be generous. When we see needs, we're quick to open our wallet. We're quick to take our shirt. Whatever it is, we're quick to give because that's who Jesus is. And that's who Jesus is in and through us. We're generous people. 
Uh, James, Jesus' half-brother, would write about this in James 2, 15 through 17. And if you haven't studied the book of James, I recommend it. Uh, But James, as he writes this book, kind of has a chip on his shoulder to religious people that are just religious people. You know, Christians doing the church thing, but not being changed by Christ and living it. And so James says it this way in James 2.14. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, without giving them the... Uh, the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In a similar way, I think in in our context, it could be you hear of a need, I'll pray for you. (laughs) I hope things work out, I'll pray for you. But if you have the ability to give, to help take care, that's what we're to do. You know, you see here, they were selling their things and giving to those that have need. Does that mean that you should go sell a car and give to something else? Maybe. Does it mean that when you hear of a family that has a car broken down and and they're struggling and they need a car that you should loan them one of yours? Maybe. Absolutely. The generosity part is prescriptive. How they did it here is descriptive. You know, we don't need to go sell our things unless God tells you to, then you you do. How it works out is going to be between you and God, but here's the key of it. We are generous at heart. Now, is this socialism? Because it kind of looks like it. That, you know, they have all things in common. Well, no, there's a big difference between socialism and, and Christian generosity. Socialism forces it. We're going to force you to share and give your stuff away and, and make it all equal. This is very, very different because this is God working on a heart to then take care of others. Now, maybe you've seen this too. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem is then people start mooching off the generous people. And so in 1 Thessalonians, Paul would say, oh, and by the way, you guys are so generous, which is great, but if somebody's not working, they don't get to eat. So he spoke to those lazy, like, these Christian people are really generous. Let's go hang out with them and just let them give their stuff. Paul's like, you know, let's, let's have some wisdom in that too. If somebody's not working, they shouldn't eat, you know, they shouldn't mooch off the rest of the group. But nevertheless, we are marked by generosity. So, question, you know, in our context, now, not 2,000 years ago, are these habits in our lives? And I would argue these should be habits in your life and mine and in us as a church. Again, because this is an overflow of who Christ is in us. You know, this should be, again, we say habits. These are just habits. This is what God has made us to be. You know, and part of this is that blessed strategy of how do we take this and then bring it out. We work on it. We're intentional together of living this. And so my question for you is, as you look at these five things, is there one or two that sticks out to you and go, that's not part of my life. My question is, how can you adjust that? You know, don't feel guilty about it. The, The point is not shame. The point is, if you're not, then God has something actually bigger and better for you. So how can you step into that? You know, you have your your bulletin here or, or online, you know, if, if there's a need you realize that you're lacking, fill out this form on the back. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> fill out this form and the other side gives you some options. You know, if you want to know what's it like to be in a group, we're not going to force that. 
market there. We'll, we'll call you. We'll talk to you. What's it look like to be in a group? What's it look like to be part of a church? Discovery is happening right now, and, and I, I think Paul would agree. You know, if, if you're new and you're like, well, what's Discovery? You know, that starts right after church today. It's a four-week thing. They've already done one. So there's three more. Um, you can catch up on the other one later. Uh, but if you want to know more about that, hang out, stay. Uh, lunch will be provided, and you can learn about that. Let me pray. Father, thank you.